my name is Liva Bonnevi and this is episode 27 from Clan of the Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. This week's interview grows out of a clinic I attended last weekend. Just as many Norwegians are born with skis on their feet, some Americans are born with their feet in the stirrups, like today's guest, Jeff Sanders, who has built his horsemanship on a tradition that goes back six generations or around 170 years in his own family. In this episode, we will look back at the origin of the California Vaquero and talk about what we have lost along the way. Good to go. Okay. Okay, Jeff, um, welcome to this Norwegian uh, studio. Yeah. I apologize for spring being rather cold. It's a little chilly, but that's all right. We brought warm clothes. That's good. So um, when I invite guests to my podcast, I usually like to ask them how it all started. Okay. With their passion for horses. Yeah. But with you, I would like to go back further in time. Okay, cool. uh, And talk about from from which tradition your horsemanship uh, comes from. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of going back in time, we've got to go back quite a ways, about six generations. So my family started doing this kind of horsemanship clear the clear back in um, over 170 years ago. So when we're looking at the the timeline on one side of my family, it goes back to 1854, um, and we can trace that directly back to the different relatives. And the other side of the family is five generations. So on one side is six generations, the other side is five. And it's just kind of been part of the family tradition, the family business um, for that long. The horses, the cattle, but primarily the horses. So can you say something about um, what kind of tradition you grow out of? Yeah, the, the old California horsemanship tradition actually started here in Europe. And it's basically the horsemanship the Spanish took with them, the old war riding, that old historical kind of riding. And then it it changed over time and was adapted to the environment in California. So they didn't need the horsemanship as much for warfare, and they but they did need the horsemanship for working with the cows. And what they found was that the same horsemanship that they used for fighting was very effective in the cow work. So that just applied... Um, to everything they needed there in California raising cattle, because at the time that was the primary industry. And it was cattle primarily raised for hides and for the tallow, for the fat. Um, there wasn't a way to preserve meat and stuff at that time. So that was the the primary export in California. And to work the cattle, they needed the horses. Um, and, and it was also cultural. Horsemanship was very, very highly valued in the culture. And the horsemen of the time, like what they call the haciendados or the, the, the royalty, the, the, the owners of the ranches, that kind of thing, they all came out of the old Spanish traditional horsemanship, and they were kind of like the rock stars of, of the time. They were what everybody wanted to emulate. So when you look at it, all of the younger people were trying to aspire to be better riders, um, and that was just a real big cornerstone of the horsemanship. And in California at the time, they did everything horseback. There weren't nearly as many wagons and carriages and that kind of thing as we had in other parts of the United States or what you would find in Europe. Most everybody rode 
horseback. Men, women, children, everybody was horseback. Um, a child, when they were born, when they were first born, they'd wrap the kid up, hand it to an uncle, and the uncle would gallop to the church. So it's kind of like your introduction to life is, welcome to the world, you're at full gallop to the church to get blessed by the priest. I mean, that was kind of the culture. And that culture continued for quite a long time and was still very strong when I was a kid growing up um, there on the coast of California around Santa Barbara, San Inez area. And that pride in horsemanship, you really, you got respect in your community about how well you rode. Um, and that created a whole unique kind of horse culture that didn't really exist in other places in the world in quite the same way. And they were referred to as vaqueros? Yeah, yeah, which is just Spanish word for cowboy. Yeah, but when we look at the vaquero horsemanship and we think of the American cowboy, the two are not the same. When the American cowboy really, we think of that classical American cowboy kind of thing that you would see in the movies and that kind of stuff, that didn't really start to emerge until after our American Civil War, which was the 1860s. Um, by that time, in California, we'd already been doing the same kind of stuff for over 100 years. And the other thing that was different was like if you were in Texas in the 1800s and two guys got in a fight and they decided they want to kill each other, they'd start shooting at each other. In California, they were still actively sword fighting and not using guns as much as they would swords. It was part of the tradition. You were showing your horsemanship. So it was the quality of horsemanship or the kind of horsemanship that you needed in California at the time. One, just to have respect in the community, but also even just to be able to get a job. Was it a higher level or at a different level than you would have, let's say, in Texas or Nebraska or that kind of thing? So it was a very, very different culture than from anywhere else in the yeah. U.S. Yeah, and it, not only anywhere else in the U.S., but it also became different than what it originated in Spain. While in Spain, if anybody listening to this has been to Spain you know that the horse culture is very strong there. All of their festivals, somebody's going to be horseback. It's it's horses and religious and usually combined, and somebody's going to be horseback. But in California, one of the things that changed is climate was more mild, both summer and winter, so you had more days that you could ride more. And then the other thing that happened is culturally the Spanish families um, – even the even the poorest Spanish family would have at least one native Indian servant. And the average middle-class family would usually have one servant for every member of the household. So, you know, for those, for you guys listening to this, if you think about it, if you had a servant for every member of your household, how much time could you spend with your horses? You know, how much time could you spend working on that as an art form? And that's one of the other things that was different is that the average rider still thought of their horsemanship as an art form. So here in Europe, with the Baroque writing as an example, it was an art form, and it was thought of as an art form, but only amongst a relatively small group of people who wrote it as an art form, where in California, culturally, that was the norm. Um, it was considered an art form by everybody, and everybody rode, and that brought everything up to a different level. And because of the weather and not having the stress about, you know, you've got the servants, you've got, you're not doing a lot of manual labor, that kind of thing, you had a lot more time. 
So it took the time pressure off of the riders. So as an example, like here in Norway, winter's a little cold. Yeah, you don't have as many days of the year that you can be out actively riding comfortably and working on your stuff. Where in California, you're riding in January without a jacket. And you have all of that time. So there's no time pressure. You don't lose days through the winter. You don't lose horsemanship time because of cold weather or the opposite. Like I used to live in Spain. I lived in Cordoba. The summer's there. It's 50 degrees in summer. You don't want to ride in that. In California, no, it doesn't get that warm. You might have a few days where it gets into the you know into 40 or so. And you might have a few days in the winter where you have a little bit of ice on the water trough of the horse's water first thing in the morning. And then it thaws out by but by lunchtime. So you have a lot more time. That's why the horsemanship kind of got softer. There wasn't the need to push the horses. There wasn't a need to do anything except get the highest quality horsemanship that you could, and you had all the time to do it. And then the quality of horses, they had so many horses to choose from. Um, if you can imagine, you got you look at the side of a mountain and there's a thousand Spanish horses there and you can pick the best one. Yeah, so they brought their own horses from yeah, Spain. Yeah, and so when you think of the of the the American Mustang, as a lot of people think of it today, is very different than it was back in the 1800s. In the 1800s, the wild horses in California, the Mustang, were Spanish. They weren't. Now they're a mix. Now it's a lot of there's a lot of other stuff in bred into them because there's been a lot of feral horses and that kind of stuff that have gotten loose. There isn't a lot of Spanish blood left in the vast majority of Mustangs anymore in America. Um, in fact, you won't find more Spanish blood in, a, in most Mustangs than you would in your, your average just horse there in the U.S. But at the time that the California vaqueros were really, you know, the 1800s, late 1700s, all the way till the late 1800s, and even into the very early 1900s, it was still all Spanish horses. So they were smaller than what we think of today. They were smaller working horses, but it was still very much the Spanish horses. So you think about how a Spanish horse moves, the kind of things you can do with a good Spanish horse, and then you think you've got a thousand of them on the side of the mountain to choose the best one. Now, what kind of horsemanship level can you reach with that horse as your partner? You have the best pos possible partner to work with, and you're surrounded by people who ride well, and that's how the community judges your worth. It brings everybody up in their horsemanship. Sounds like a very good place to grow up. It was. It was. Unfortunately, we've lost a lot of it now. Over the last decades, it was what happened is in the 80s. In the U.S., the economy was growing. It was booming. A lot of people had money. And they wanted to do these big championship shows. So what they did was they decided to have the big national championship shows, the big world shows now, in Oklahoma, Texas area, because it's kind of in the middle of the country. So if they're coming from Florida or California, it's pretty equal. But the problem is the horse culture was very different in the rest of the country. But what happened is it, it started changing so that if you wanted to win a national championship or a world title, you had to ride the way everybody else rode, which was different than how we rode in California. So at a show in California, even just the equipment, nobody rode in split reins. So that just the two leather reins you would see at a normal Western show, nobody did that. that. In fact, you, I don't even think it was legal to ride into a show arena that way. You had to have rawhide reins. You had to have your shafts 
You had to have a riata, a braided riata on your saddle. You had to have hobbles on your saddle. It was all connected to, to the actual work. And most of the time, back in that time period, the horses that were being shown were also being used on the ranches. So the horses that I showed in the rain working cow horse, that we roped on, that we showed in the raining, they were all working horses. So the people you showed against on Saturday, you were helping move their cows on Wednesday. It was very normal, um, where now it's not, we've lost a lot of that. Um, and we've lost a lot of the, um, of the culture and the style of horsemanship. We kind of have a running joke that in the U.S. around the 80s, California and Texas got in a fight of horsemanship and Texas won. <laughs> so when you can see it in the equipment with the split reins and all that stuff, it's, it's very much a uh, Texas style of horsemanship. Um, uh, I come to think of people like Bill and Tom Dorrance, mm -hmm. Ray Hunt. Yeah. Where are they placed in all this? Good question. Um, they were living, they weren't, uh, the, the family, they weren't kind of originally from California. They were, um, but they were living in Northern California and they were considered in the community to be very good horsemen who were very kind to their horses. And most importantly for the general public, they were willing to share their knowledge with other people where most of the, the vaqueros were not. If you weren't part of the family, they just weren't going to share the knowledge with you. And it was, again, a cultural thing. But if you think about it... Is it like a secret recipe? A little bit, a little bit, yeah. It's, you had the same thing here in Europe a lot. You had guilds like that would be like the jewelers or the armor makers, or, and they would keep their, their manufacturing secrets within their little community. And it was the same thing with the Olvaqueros. They wouldn't teach outside of the family because you want to give your own family the advantage. So if I was if I was a vaquero living in the 1800s, I wouldn't be teaching anyone other than my son because then that gives my son the advantage to get a good job with the ranch, doing something he loved. And at the time, the working class... The vaqueros were at the top of the socioeconomic ladder in terms of the working class. And there was a saying that the difference between a candle maker, which was at the bottom end, and a vaquero, which was at the top end, the only difference was how well they rode. That was it. You didn't ride well, you're a candle maker. You ride good, you're a vaquero. That was it. Th that was the difference. So there was no incentive for the vaqueros to share the knowledge outside of their family. And there was actually a disincentive. And even within the family, culturally, my uncle, um, a couple of his kids just weren't really that interested. They rode, but they weren't really that interested. One of his sons was interested, so he shared a lot of his knowledge with that son, but didn't share the knowledge with the other kids because they just weren't that interested. Okay. So he kept it, he directed it towards the son who was interested. So you kind of have to earn it yeah. in a way? Yeah, yeah. And you, you had to earn it, and you can't earn it with money. You, you had to earn it with dedication. And then you had to either be born into it, you were married into it, or you really showed that you really, really wanted it, and you were lucky enough that that vaquero would show you something. This is where you, even like Pat Pirelli and some of those people, they will talk about how you, to learn anything from the old vaqueros, you would have to hide behind an oak tree. Because you would. They wouldn't school their horses when you were watching. They wouldn't let you see what they were doing. 
even within their own ranch, when they were starting colts or something, they would have a solid wall in their round corral so people couldn't see their tricks. And my father was the same way. If we, he was schooling a horse and somebody drove into the ranch, he would stop schooling the horse. Even though I knew he wasn't done riding, he'd quit riding because he wasn't going to school the horse in front of somebody who was not part of the family, basically. Um, and it's just, it was part of the culture. And, and because of that, the horsemanship almost died because it just didn't get passed on. So without Bill and Tom Dorrance? They were a little different, though. They weren't really part of the Vaquero community. Um, I got a little sidetracked on that. Um, they weren't part of the Vaquero community. They were good horsemen who were softer with their horses. So at that time, you were either in the Vaquero community and you had that horsemanship, was which was also softer and doing some similar things to the Dorrance's, or you had the harder cowboy kind of horsemanship. And the Dorrance's were very good at starting colts. They were good at working with problem horses. Their primary tool was the snaffle bit, where the vaqueros, the old vaqueros, their primary tool was the hackamore. The, also, the old vaqueros didn't, they didn't do a lot with problem horses. They did a lot of colt starting, but the colt starting was specific to, I'm going to start this colt, and now I'm going to be riding this colt for the next 20 or 30 years. It wasn't, I'm going to start, uh, you know, 100 colts this year for 100 different people. So it was a very different dynamic. The starting of the cult was I'm starting this horse and I'm thinking about what am I going to be doing with this horse in the next five, 10, 15 years, not what am I doing with this horse in the next five weeks or three months before I send it back to its owner. So it's, it's a very different kind of dynamic when we're looking at it. So the Dorrances were very good at the cult starting. They were very good at, at working with the horse's mind. And most people thought that was very unique the people who were in the vaquero community were like, well, yeah, that's, of course, that's what, that's normal. Because in the community it was, but outside the vaquero community it wasn't, okay? And then, like, Ray Hunt was a different story with him. Before he worked with the Dorrances, he was not a good horseman. And I know a lot of people get mad when I say it, but it's just true. Um, and my, I know firsthand from my family, my mom, my dad, they all lived in the same area. And grew up, they were all riding together at the same, you know, they're showing with each other, the whole kind of thing. And Ray Hunt was very hard with the horses. He was the typical hard cowboy, force the horse to work kind of attitude. And he had a lot of trouble. And to the point where some of the stuff wasn't safe that he was doing. His whole thing before he worked with the Dorrance's is, I have a saddle in the back of my truck. You tell me where the horse, the horse and I'll ride it. And that was it. Then he went and worked with the Dorrances, and because his horsemanship changed so much, people noticed and said, wow, that big change in your horsemanship. And he credited the, credited the Dorrance with that change. And that's basically how the Dorrances even really became known um, throughout, throughout the, the area there in California. If it wasn't for Ray Hunt, most people never would have heard of the Dorrances. They, they would have been... A, family of cowboys up in Northern California who were good cowboys and that would have been it. Um, but because Ray made such a big change in his horsemanship, it got noticed. And then he was doing a lot of cult starting clinics. And at the time clinics weren't a thing like they are now. Um, and especially cult starting clinics were not a thing. And you didn't do a cult starting clinic. You either started your own cult or you sent the cult to a trainer to start. And that was it. So not only did he do the clinics, but he did them in a very unique way 
where he would use the herd dynamic and he would have, you know, 10, 12 horses all together. Everybody would get on and the first ride would be with no bridle, no halter, no nothing. Um, and it was very unique and it got a lot of attention. And as he was teaching these clinics, he would talk a lot about the Dorrances and he would talk a lot about the mental part of working with the horse's mind. And outside of the Vercaro community, you didn't hear that kind of talk about the horse's mind. It was all about making the horse work physically, not so much how we're working with the horse mentally. So they provided information that the general public just didn't have access to. And again, by him crediting the Dorrances, that's how they got famous. Then other people found him from there, and then that that all built from there. But the important thing is that they primarily, all of them, the Dorrances, um, mostly rode in a snaffle bit. They did ride in other things too, but they mostly, it was, their snaffle bit was their primary tool. Ray Hunt, yes, he rode in a hackamore, but the snaffle bit was his primary tool. We still see that still today with like Buck Brenneman. Yeah, he rides in a hackamore sometimes, but the snaffle bit is his primary tool. The old vaqueros, in the old tradition, there is no snaffle bit. The first ride is in a hackamore and a bozal, whichever term you want to use, a rawhide nose band. Um, the first ride was in a hackamore. Every ride was in the hackamore until the horse was ready to go into the bridle and be ridden with a bozal with the smaller one under the under the bit. That was it. There was no snaffle bit involved. So that was a difference in horsemanship, not only culturally, but also based on equipment. You don't ride the hackamore the same way you ride a snaffle bit. Um, they function differently. There's a lot of things that, that are different with that. So the horsemanship was also a little different. And the, the wave that we saw with natural horsemanship also grew out of all of this? or Yeah, it kind of grew out of that same tradition. And a lot of that was about learning, people learning how to work around the horse's mind and the way the horses think and the way the horses learn and how to develop that partnership. And that's one of the things that a lot of people didn't even realize, didn't even know about the Vaquero horsemanship is the Vaquero horsemanship, when it, the old California horsemanship, it develops a, a, that, that connection with that horse, that partnership with that horse in a way that isn't really found in many other styles of horsemanship. Um, to the point where we can do things that are really not safe. Um, but because we have that partnership, it's possible. And an extreme example of that is the old vaqueros used to rope grizzly bears. And they did what? They roped grizzly bears, yeah. And for those, for those of you listening to this that don't know what a grizzly bear is, just imagine a polar bear and paint him brown. That's a grizzly bear. And they would rope them on horseback. So... In the early days, what they did when they were slaughtering the cows, the cattle, um, for the hides and the tallow, they couldn't preserve the meat. So there was a lot of carcasses left over. And there was a very symbiotic relationship between the bears and the vaqueros because the bears were basically the cleanup crew. They would take the carcasses and the bears would then clean up the carcasses. And as long as the bears beh behaved themselves... Everything was good, but some of the bears would start to come in and get a little aggressive, and they would rope the grizzly bears. And you would have two, three, you know, four people, you'd rope, they'd rope the grizzly bears. Now, this bear is trying to kill the horse, trying to kill the rider, but the partnership is so strong, and that horse is so with that rider that they were able to do that to a point where, where I grew up um, near Santa Barbara, 
one of the old vaqueros back in the 1800s was so good at it, he could rope the grizzly bears by himself, just him and his horse, one person. The grizzly bear is the most dangerous animal in North America, and they would rope him on horseback. And that's how strong that partnership is. Um, for me, as a kid, as a teenager, um, I used to rope wild pigs. The freezer was empty. We'd go rope wild pig. Sometimes the pig run away. Sometimes the pigs attack you. You have to have that kind of partnership with your horse where you can function in that kind of environment. Um, the cattle they raised, they're not the nice, friendly, you know, dairy cows. They're, you know, nice, friendly cows that we see all over Europe. Those cows, um, they, were, they were dangerous on purpose because at the time you had the bears, you had the mountain lions, you had animals that would kill the calves, they would kill the babies. You wanted cows that would fight to protect their babies. But that means they would also fight when you're trying to work with them. So the cows were dangerous, the bears were dangerous, it was a dangerous environment, and the horsemanship developed in that environment in a way that was very similar, like if you're taking a horse to war. You have to have that partnership. It can't be forced because if it's forced, you're gonna die. It has to be working together. And we lost a lot of that in a lot of the other styles of horsemanship throughout the throughout the years. And some of it is still lost, I would say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it even the old California horsemanship. It's not practiced very much in very many places. Um, and part of it's because it's very most people can't make a living at it. So what happened is I know of several people that are about my same age. They grew up with the traditions just like I did. But then they took that to the show arena because they that's they had to pay their bills, and that's where the money was. And the show riding is very different than the old California riding because the mindset is different. When you're showing, you're getting paid by a client to get the maximum amount of progression from your horse in the minimal amount of time. Very few clients will just say, here's my horse, ride him for a year, whatever it costs. That doesn't happen very often. It does occasionally, but not very often. Most of the time what happens is they want, a, they want to reach a certain level and they have a budget and it want, they want it done in a certain amount of time. So you have a lot of time pressure. The futurities, um, the futurity system with the young horses, it's all about time pressure. Take a young horse, get him to f perform at the maximum level possible in the shortest amount of time possible. Um, where the old vaquero tradition is exactly the opposite. I don't care what that horse does the next three months. I care what he does the next three, five, six, eight, ten years. So even just the entire approach is different. And that's part of what's been lost. It's It's gone from... I call it the McDonald's drive-through of horsemanship. Um, it's everybody wants quick results right now. You know, these days they want that that instant gratification. And yeah, you go through the McDonald's drive-through and you get a hamburger, but is that really good food? And it's very different, and it takes a whole different skill level to create a McDonald's hamburger compared to what it takes to create a real gourmet meal. And we see in the horsemanship today a lot of McDonald's hamburgers. We don't see a lot of gourmet meals because a lot of people are not taking the time required to learn how to do that and taking the time to prepare the horse because they're in a hurry. 
I mean, a lot of people will tell you today that if you haven't gotten, if you haven't started your horse and you're not riding him and he's three years old, it, it, it's like, well, what's, you're late. Why are you waiting so long to ride? My last horse, I, he was four and a half before I ever stepped on it. Um, it was normal, like in the old days, for those horses to be started at five, four and a half, five, six years old. Same thing here in Europe, the old Baroque horses, sometimes six, seven, and eight before they were getting really going to work, where now they're they're starting in sometimes less than two years old. They're 18 months old and they're getting on them. Um, so it's a completely different mindset. So we've lost a lot of that, not just in the horsemanship and the way that we ride, but just the way that we think about riding. Um, we don't think so much about how long it takes that horse to learn, how long it takes that horse to to really process the information. It's all about maneuvers rather than the long-term partnership with that horse. Can we talk about that long-term partnership with horses? I mean, what strikes me as odd or, you know, like a curiosity is that that's what we came to the stables to get. Yeah, yeah. You know, the dream is that, you know, the dance, the relationship yeah. with the horse. Yeah. And then comes money. Yeah. And time. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, we lose the important part. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's the sport world. Uh, I'm, I don't want people to think I'm against sport. I mean, I would still show if I got a show I want to go to. It's like, okay, that's fine. But we've lost, I think what happens is the sport world has infiltrated a lot of, not just the horsemanship, but the thinking about in the horsemanship. And a lot of times we tend to put time pressure on ourselves and on our horses that we don't need to. And I, I see this a lot. People, they want to show and they say, well, I got to get my horse ready for this, for this show coming up. Do you? Do you really need to? Do you need to go to that show? Um, so for me growing up, my mom made her living training and showing horses. But if the horse wasn't ready, that horse stayed home. And I watched my mom almost lose a very, very important client because she wouldn't take one of his horses to the show because she said the horse isn't ready. Later, he thanked her for it. But at the time, she's like, if she was thinking if she lost this client, how are we going to eat kind of thing. But what happens is I think that we, I think we all kind of, like you said, we want that partnership, but that partnership takes a level of commitment and a level of patience. And sometimes that commitment and that patience can be distracted by other things and other people in the way they think about their horses and their riding. So for instance, I know for a lot of people, you know, if, if you're keeping your horse at a barn where there's a lot of show people, a lot of people who are showing and that's their focus, it's hard not to let that affect you in a certain way. Um, we are subconsciously, we have, um, we are very good at learning by observation, both good and bad. <laughs> and I see this a lot, um, as I'm teaching, as I'm traveling around the world, teaching clinics, what happens a lot of times is I teach in a place and then I don't come back for another year. And I just had this last year, one of the clinics, one of the girls, uh, she'd ridden with me several times before she came in, she started war warming up before she rode and I could tell right away that she had changed barns and she was riding in a show barn. Her, her riding changed completely. She, was com she wasn't even aware of it. But it's because of how everybody around her rode. She changed the way she was riding without even knowing and realizing she did it. And it changed the dynamic between her and her horse because it became more about 
perfecting certain maneuvers rather than working together to get as good a quality of movement, um, health, all of that stuff as they could. Um, and it's tough. It's, it's, it's a tough journey to build that partnership. And it takes the right relationship between the horse and rider. Um, it has to, the, the relationship has to fit. The, the communication between the two people have to match. The personalities have to match. If you're really trying to get that kind of partnership that so many people dream of. You just heard episode 27 from Canada Horses, a podcast about horses and horse people. This was the first part of the interview with Jeff Sanders. Part two will be published Monday next week. And there we will dive deeper into Jeff's philosophy. So it is an episode I really recommend. I want to thank my composer, Fredrik Blom. I want to thank my guest, Jeff Sanders and Susanna and Ivar for arranging the clinic and setting up the interview in the middle of a very busy weekend. And last but not least, I want to thank you, dear listener, for your patience. May the horse be forever with you.